from National Public Radio, it's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. When the World Trade Center came under attack, the call didn't just go out to firefighters and police. Among the first folks on the scene, the Environmental Protection Agency. I've been at this for 22 years, and we've gone from Exxon Valdez, Love Canal, the Gulf War. This is a very different disaster than anything we've dealt with in the past. EPA's ongoing concerns include air quality, water purity, and asbestos in and around the site. And for people cleaning up the disaster, the work is just beginning. We're all trying to figure out how long it would take to get all this debris out. And uh, as some people get overwhelmed, they say eight months, some people say six months, and that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week of moving trucking. The view from ground zero and more this week on Living on Earth, coming up right after this. This is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood at the World Trade Center disaster site in New York at the staging area for the Environmental Protection Agency. In the days and weeks ahead, the EPA will monitor air and water quality in the area to help guard public health. Immediately after the towers collapsed, the call went out to the EPA to assess the environmental hazards for the rescue and cleanup workers. It was chaos in my mind. Mike Ferriola was part of the first response team of the EPA on September 11th. I arrived with three other EPA employees, and uh, when we got here, which was at about 11 o'clock, um, we tried to approach uh, Ground Zero, and we ended up being held up. It was almost like it was snowing. There was so much dust in the air. People were running and uh, in fear of other buildings collapsing. So what did you do? What did we do? <laughs> when the people were running, we were running too. Uh, later on the day, when things calmed down a little bit, uh, we... we started to collect some uh, dust samples of the material that had fallen out over the day. The good news, despite choking dust clouds and the acrid odor of burning plastic, out of four surface dust samples, three showed no concentrated toxic materials. Mike Ferriola did find one sample of dust containing an elevated level of asbestos used to insulate part of the buildings. Asbestos can cause fatal lung diseases. Health officials quickly posted fact sheets urging rescue and recovery workers to wear respirators. At first, many ignored the advice. You know, initially there was that incredible, almost animal ferocity in terms of attacking the rubble to try and find the brotherhood, you know, firemen and police. And now, you know, they're sort of um, being more attentive to those things. Life at Ground Zero has settled in almost a routine for the EPA crews, and they are standing by for requests from the workers digging into the massive amount of rubble. Dave Chartis is a senior member of the team that fields these requests. What they do is they uncover shafts, and then the request is, is it safe to go down into that shaft? And what we do is we lower equipment down into that shaft, take a look at the air quality in there, and give them that answer right away, knowing what the results are so that they can turn around and get into those void spaces and look around for people. I know there, of course, any chemical could be a problem, but is there a short list of what you're most likely to be worried about? Uh, In those situations where it's a question of, really, is there enough oxygen down there in the first place? If there is enough oxygen, what are the other things that could be potentially in it? That's why we have the mobile uh, laboratories here, which is the white at the end of the pier there. Mm -hmm. So we bring it three blocks up, over to that, run it through on an immediate time basis. They, the bags get there, it's immediately plugged into the machine. We get readings in minutes, get those results back down to them. A few blocks away from the collapsed and burned out World Trade Center buildings, a massive cleanup is also going on. There was a, virtually a tidal wave of, of dust going down the narrow alleys, which served as sort of a conduit to channel and funnel and actually speed up some of the, the dust, uh, which traveled practically down to the river. David Harvey is vice president of Tradewinds, a private company that cleans up homes and businesses in the wake of natural and environmental disasters. Hundreds of Tradewind workers are cleaning the inches of dust that cake the inside and outside of buildings close to ground zero that remain standing. 
what you may see when you see our people working is you're going to see them cleaning every bit, you know, they're cleaning every little corner. It's almost using the toothbrush, and they're doing it over and over and over again. Working around the clock, so far they've cleaned up more than a dozen companies, including banks, restaurants, and utilities. Meanwhile, back at Ground Zero, there's plenty of work ahead. The EPA continues to monitor both indoor and outdoor air quality, as well as using high-efficiency vacuums to suck up samples of ash and dust in the streets and on sidewalks, and checking to see if any plumes of pollution show up in the Hudson River. Again, David Chartis of the EPA. I've been at this for 22 years, and this is, this is a very different disaster than anything we've dealt with in the past. We've gone from Exxon Valdez, Love Canal, the Gulf War. This is just a different scale, and looking at this, we're working our way back till normal. Whether it takes weeks, months, or even years to get back to normal is a guessing game. Still, Mr. Chartis is not discouraged. Everybody's been just wonderful on this, from uh, the people doing it. One, one unsung group on this is the sanitation department for New York, which I'm sure nobody particularly thinks about, has just done unbelievable work on clearing this up. I mean, the, the stuff from around, it was, you know, feet deep, and it's just gone. We thought we'd meet some of these unsung heroes, people who, unlike the police and firefighters, are unaccustomed to dealing with the aftermath of violence and death. Living on Earth, Cyan Toomey spoke with some of the people who are cleaning up Lower Manhattan. My name's Eddie Arenas. I'm a sanitation worker. Manhattan East 6 is my garage. Eddie Arenas has been at Ground Zero 12 hours a day, every day, since the attack. What we're doing is we're clearing up the streets around Crown of this. I'm tired, don't mind. Ground zero. Oh, I'm, I just had it today. I'm waiting for my supervisor to tell me to go home. The sanitation workers are armed with barrels, brooms, and shovels, doing what they can to clear a path for the heavy machinery that needs to come in. Arena says he's seen firsthand what the force of the collapse did to the towers. It all turned into, like, I don't know, it's hard to explain. It's like dust, really, if you, if you, you know. I mean, look at this, there's zombies. That's what we're picking up with, with a bunch of papers and, and, and clothing and, and a lot of stuff in it. You don't know what's in it. Sometimes, though, it's only too obvious what's in the debris. I've seen these two, two police officers walk out with a body bag. Normally it takes six police officers to walk out with a body bag. It just took two. So what they're finding in there is not whole bodies. It's just body parts. And that, that made me cry. Because it did. I felt really bad for these people. But these people never had a chance. Arena says he sometimes gets frustrated because he wishes he could do more. It's tough. You know, you try to do, you know, you want to get in there. You don't want to just be cleaning. You want to get in there and get, you, me personally, I want to get in there and help, you know, and move stuff, you know, even if it's by hand. I don't mind the hard labor. What have you been told about the need for you guys to keep working these 12-hour shifts? They told us to stay strong. They'll let us know when they'll cut the force down. Because we're small. We only have like 6,000 people on Department of Sanitation, so... that's not, We could use a lot more, that's for sure. There are others involved in the cleanup, like trucking companies responsible for hauling the wreckage to the Fresh Kills landfill on Staten Island. Fresh Kills was closed earlier this year, but then reopened because it was the only place in the area big enough to handle more than a million tons of debris. Whitney Trucking has dispatched its entire fleet to Lower Manhattan. Christopher Yuzi is one of the company's owners. I'm a Vietnam veteran, and I think I've seen uh, some war-torn areas in life, and this, uh, this is immense. Uh, I've been in the construction business 35 years, and I haven't seen an immensity in enormity. In fact, there's Building South, that's a pile. Building North is about Building 7, Building 5, and Building 3. You know, we're, we're all trying to figure out how long it would take to get all this debris out. And uh, as some people get overwhelmed, they say eight months. Some people say six months. And that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week of moving trucking. So let's talk about your last full shift, which was, what, yesterday, starting early in the morning? I, I've been on uh, 24 hours, but I'm fine. I, I'm, I'm going to be able to be relieved. 
and uh, it's I'm tired. Um, you know, I have my wife is cooking meals, and I never get home to eat them. But Yuzi says, however many missed meals it takes, he wants to see this job finished. For New York is walking on a street, and I'm a New Yorker myself. I think to, the quicker we clean it up, the more, the more we get a positive outlook back to the city. Uh, it just, uh, you know, every time you look at the debris, it, it seems like your mind goes blank and you just can't understand it or how it was done. Or So in my opinion, the quicker we clean it up, the better we, we look for the world, too. And the morale of, of your men at this point? Uh, I think uh, they're over, everybody's overwhelmed when you first pull up, and I think you have to take a minute to uh, take it all in. And uh, so far, the morale is good. One of Christopher Yuzi's drivers is Salvatore Cinquamani. He and the rest of the truckers here have already made about 5,000 trips to the Fresh Kills landfill, where FBI agents comb through the wreckage for potential evidence. Fresh Kills is starting to look like ground zero. The smell there in, in the beginning when we first started dumping there was like propane, like the gas they're pumping out. Now it's starting to smell worse than that. It's starting to smell like, like my family owns a funeral home, so I could say it could start smelling like a morgue. When Cinquamani first came on duty, he pulled a 24-hour shift. I would have st- stayed here longer, right? But I was a little bit too tired to sleep, and I just don't want to put anybody else's life into jeopardy. And when did you get on site? What was your first... We were down here, I believe it was Wednesday morning or that uh, the day it happened, Tuesday, Tuesday night. We were all ready to come down. I told my, my boss, said, come on, we're going to go down there. I said, I'm down. I said, you know, let's do it on the arm if we have to, just to help people. I don't care, pay or not, I would have came down here Tuesday. I would have came down here with my own shovel. Salvatore Cinquamani, Christopher Yuzi, and Eddie Arenas spoke with us near Battery Park, just a few blocks away from Ground Zero. For Living on Earth, I'm Diane Tuman. Our stories on the cleanup at the World Trade Center complex were produced by Jennifer Chu and Jesse Wegman. Coming up, the politics of oil in Central Asia. First, this page from the Animal Notebook with Maggie Villager. At Ground Zero, nearly 300 dogs are working in 12-hour shifts around the clock in the recovery effort. Humans, dead or alive, emit a scent, and millions of their microscopic particles are floating in the air for dogs to detect with their keen sense of smell. Search dogs are also effective where human sight is limited, like in dark, debris-strewn places, and even underwater. They usually come from the larger working and sporting breeds, like German Shepherds, Rottweilers, or Golden Retrievers. Special boots were donated to protect the dog's paws from the sharp, unstable debris they're working in, but the footwear inhibited their traction and had to be cast aside. So many of the dogs have gotten cuts and bruises from sharp material in the debris. Others developed eye and respiratory problems from the dust and smoke. But the Federal Emergency Management Agency has veterinary medical assistance teams on hand to treat the animals. That's this week's Animal Note. I'm Maggie Villiger. And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In the wake of the September 11th attacks, life in New York City has been altered in many ways. One small change is the return, at least for now, of ferry service from Brooklyn to Manhattan after a 59-year hiatus. The New York Department of Transportation hopes the free hourly boats will help ease traffic congestions from restrictions in the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel and on the Brooklyn Bridge. The first ferry from what is now Brooklyn to what was then called New Amsterdam began back in 1642, with boats that were rowed across the strong current in the East River. Passengers could wait for days for clear weather before crossing. Ferry travel improved in the 1800s. With the launch of steamships, crossing times were cut to just a few minutes. The Union Ferry Company of Brooklyn transported almost 50 million passengers a year by mid-century, but the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge in 1883 sealed the ferry's fate. The city took over the ferries, but ended service to Brooklyn in 1942. 
Ironically, as travelers get a rare chance to ride a Brooklyn ferry today, with the World Trade Center towers gone, the skyline of Lower Manhattan looks much like it did back in 1942. And for this week, that's the Living on Earth Almanac. On Capitol Hill, almost everything's been put aside. Campaign finance reform, disputes over clean air regulations, debates of all sorts are on hold. Lawmakers want the world to see a united Congress, and they're doing their best to shelve partisan bickering. Still, there are some divisive issues that need to be decided. And as Living on Earth's Anna Solomon Greenbaum reports, energy policy debates will be among the early tests of cordiality on Capitol Hill. I believe that energy is every bit as much a security issue as is heightening the ability of the CIA. Republican Senator Larry Craig of Idaho is among a growing number of lawmakers who say it's now more urgent than ever to reverse the nation's growing dependence on foreign oil. If we became involved in a military activity in the Middle East that disrupted the flow of oil coming out of the Middle East to us and to the rest of the world, our economy could well collapse. How to reach energy independence is the thornier question, and it's being raised even during the current congressional truce. The difference now is that there's more fuel for the fire. Right now, my guess is that every citizen of New York is a little more concerned about their personal safety than they are about the environment on the North Slope of Alaska. The reference, of course, is to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and the sharp conflict over whether or not to drill there and on other public lands throughout the nation. Senator Craig is on the Energy Committee that was scheduled to wrangle over the issue later this month. For now, those meetings have been postponed, and nobody's in the mood for a showdown. Most lawmakers are speaking hesitantly, careful not to seem opportunistic in the face of tragedy. But divisions remain beneath the veneer of unity. Democratic Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts says anyone using the terrorist attacks to advance the Anwar agenda is exploiting the situation. And Senator Kerry says he remains committed to filibuster any attempt to allow drilling in Anwar. There wouldn't be an ounce of oil that comes out of there for five years to ten years. It has no impact at all in the moment. Kerry says a better way to reduce our dependence on foreign oil is to develop a new energy base. And the way you do that is by encouraging alternatives and renewables, conservation, efficiencies. So in a sense, we're back where we began, before the attacks. Only now, when it comes to energy, the focus isn't on climate or particulates or on the needs of a particular industry. It's on making sure the nation has the oil it needs. And even environmental lobbyists admit the last thing on anyone's mind right now are baby caribou. In one day, national security has eclipsed every other concern. Adam Siminski, an oil strategist with Deutsche Bank, says it's natural for people to think terrorism, the Middle East, oil. But he says connecting those dots isn't necessarily instructive. This particular crisis, even though people are making a connection to oil, so far doesn't involve oil. We haven't had a supply interruption. In fact, the impact of the terrorist activities may result in dramatically slower economic growth in the U.S. and maybe even abroad. And that would mean less demand. We may actually end up having almost a reverse of the situation in 1990. We'll have too much oil. A war in the Middle East or Central Asia could change that, of course. And some congressional insiders suspect the comprehensive energy package they were working on may have to be pushed aside until next year. Others say in the coming weeks we might see more narrow legislation focused closely on security matters. Whether drilling in Anwar will be on the agenda isn't clear. Right now, divisive issues are pretty much off-limits. If it does come up for consideration, pro-drilling supporters may have found a few new allies. At least one lawmaker who'd been on the fence said he'd remain opposed to drilling unless there was some sort of crisis. But that was before September 11th. For Living on Earth, I'm Anna Solomon Greenbaum in Washington. With the eyes of the military on Central Asia, oil markets are taking notice. Afghanistan's neighbors include Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, and Azerbaijan. And these nations are rich in oil. I'm joined now by Frederick Starr, chairman of the Central Asia Institute at Johns Hopkins University. 
Mr. Starr, what are some of the estimates on how much oil is in this region of the world? Well, the estimates are only that. But what we now know for sure is that the uh, proven reserves are slightly greater than those of the North Sea. This already puts it in the big leagues, although as a percentage of global proven reserves, it doesn't put it over 4 or 5%. Still, this is about what the United States has, if, if I remember my... Exactly order. right. And the fact is... 3%, 4% of the world's proven reserves, depending on its physical location and accessibility, can be terribly important. Tell me about the infrastructure to get this oil out of the Caspian Sea region. How's it set up at this point? The big problem with not only the Caspian itself, but uh, Central Asia, is that it's remote from everywhere. There's a kind of transportation surtax on everything moving in or moving out, including oil. Now, the pipeline system is basically through the old Soviet Union, with one small pipeline going due west from Azerbaijan to Georgia on the Black Sea, and it gets piped from there. There is no real pipeline to the south that would take you to the Persian Gulf via Iran, nor is there a pipeline to the east that would take you to China, nor is there one southeast across Afghanistan to Pakistan and India. All of these are under discussion. The only one actively being planned at this point is the one due west across Turkey to the Mediterranean port of Jehan. So tell us now, U.S. military action in this area, how does this affect oil business in the area? Assume for a moment that there is serious uh, military activity also that this results in some kind of uh, resonance elsewhere in the Arab world, and that this in turn drives up the price of oil due to a sense of risk in Saudi Arabia, etc. Now, if that happens, it means that a lot of oil in the Caspian Basin that today may not be cost-effective to extract becomes cost-effective. I assume the main result will be the Caspian region, even though it's only a marginal part of the world oil supply, will become more important. There'll be more exploration. There'll be more extraction. And its importance as a kind of balance for Europe to its Persian Gulf sources will soar. From the standpoint of an oil consumer, who will feel the most impact from changes now in the Caspian Basin? In a narrow sense, most of this oil will be consumed in Europe, indeed probably in Eastern Europe. But the nature of oil uh, is that it's a globalized market, and therefore if you add at a crucial point a flow of oil from the Caspian, it could become a major stabilizer of prices that every consumer worldwide would feel. If the U.S., is involved on the ground here in this region, in particular in Afghanistan. What kind of ripple effect might it have? If the U.S. is involved in Afghanistan, the pressure is going to be on the entire Persian Gulf region. It could be even destabilizing, particularly with regard to Saudi Arabia. That affects us very directly. It affects the Europeans even more so. What would those effects be? In the very least driving up the price of oil and forcing many questions about alternative sources of oil and, indeed, alternatives to oil, the short run could be a real crisis uh, in oil supplies, not just to the West, but to Asia as well, that could drive all the economies into real crisis. Frederick Starr is chairman of the Central Asia Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Thank you very much. One important element of any environment, though perhaps not an obvious or a tangible one, is routine. The things we do every day or every week at the same time or in the same place or with the same people comfort us with their regularity. Routine can become a tool for survival during times of stress or trauma, the kinds of times New Yorkers are going through. Clay Scott spent several years reporting from places under siege, places like Grozny, Baghdad, Beirut, and Sarajevo. 
he has these thoughts. I remember my first visit to Sarajevo before the Bosnian War. I was struck by the city's joyful arrogance, by the swagger in people's walk, by the feeling that life here was and always would be good. In the surrounding mountains, only an hour's stroll from the city center, I found streams filled with brown trout and tracks of boar and deer. Ten years later, I returned to Bosnia. The war was in full swing, Sarajevo was in ruins, and the swagger was gone. Gone as well were the park benches where lovers once sat. Every scrap of firewood had long since been scavenged. The trout-filled streams were now lined with landmines, and from the flanks of the mountains, howitzer and mortar shells rained down on those unfortunate Sarajevans who had been unable to flee. What struck me this time was people's determination not only to survive, but to retain their sanity and dignity in a nightmarish, insane world. They did this by holding stubbornly to routine in lives that had been turned upside down. My landlady in Sarajevo, Mrs. Abajic, had already lost her husband and her son in a conflict she couldn't comprehend. We would meet several times a week for an afternoon tea chat in her kitchen, blankets on our laps to keep warm, the UN-issued plastic sheeting over the windows letting in just enough light to see, smoking the precious cigarettes I had brought her, listening to the dull thud of mortar fire. Putsadanas, she would say with a smile, literally, it's shooting today, as if she were talking about the weather. Later, when I'd get up to leave, she would smile again. Enjoy the rest of your day. A couple of years later, in Lebanon, I found the same resiliency, the same stubborn clinging to normal routine in a world that had lost its sanity. A stretch of highway south of Beirut was being shelled by Israeli gunboats. Nevertheless, a line of Lebanese motorists insisted on running the deadly gauntlet. A police officer directed traffic as the cars made a mad dash for safety half a mile away. One by one, the cars drove off at a signal from the policemen, rubber burning, tires squealing, sometimes swerving as a shell struck nearby. Like my landlady, Mrs. Abajic, these were people who didn't understand what was happening to them or why. They knew only that they would not give up their routine. I spoke to those waiting in line. What was their errand? What was so urgent that it couldn't wait? In a small Italian car, six Greek Catholic nuns were huddled. We have to get back to our convent, they told me. Behind them, an elderly couple sat calmly in an old American station wagon packed with green bananas. We have to go, they said simply. Today is market day. Then, with a wave, they too drove off, accelerating into the curve ahead. In New York City this week, people are struggling with their trauma, struggling to find sanity in a world that has been badly shaken. More than anything, they will find comfort in small things, in the familiarity of routine, taking in a Broadway play or taking their dog for a walk, or cheering their beloved Yankees in the final days of the season. Number two, Derek Jeter, shortstop. Correspondent Clay Scott covered the wars in Lebanon and in Bosnia for Monitor Radio. You're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. After the events of September 11th, the Federal Aviation Administration took the unprecedented step of grounding all commercial air flights in the United States. The effect was dramatic on and off the planet. Crew members aboard the International Space Station noted how different the Earth looked without the usual contrails of jet vapor crisscrossing the atmosphere like a huge spider web. And it was quieter, too. One man who noticed joins me now from his studio in Northampton, Massachusetts. Peter Acker is a professional audio recordist who specializes in natural sound preservation. He was vacationing on Cape Cod, Massachusetts on September 11th and decided to take advantage of the relatively silent night. It felt strange. I remember sitting at Herring Cove Beach and looking out into the night sky. And my experience of the Cape is, you know, every few seconds, if not at least once a minute, you see, if not hear, a plane. On one hand, it was very calming. On the other hand, it was kind of eerie. Relatively speaking, just how quiet is it without all those planes flying around? Well, it's noticeable. I mean, a, a jet, you know, after it passes overhead, you can still hear a jet for, you know, 20, 30 miles beyond. So what exactly did you record? Uh, the first piece that I recorded was cricket in the midst of a, of a wind. And, you know, for me, as I was listening to this, it sort of underscored this feeling of, uh, I don't know, desolation, of remoteness, of 
barrenness. The next morning, I went to Pamet Road Beach and uh, recorded the sound of surf and wind. And in this particular instance, I placed the microphone actually off the tripod in the sand amidst some grasses, tall grasses. sound with those little delicate scratchings there. Exactly. I just have to say how ironic it is that, you know, it takes a tragedy of this magnitude to give us a taste of what we're missing. You know, when you remove the overflights, you get a taste of really the voice of the planet. Peter Acker is a professional sound recordist, and he spoke with us from his studio in Northampton, Massachusetts. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Just ahead, the threat of biological terrorism and what the government can do about it. First, this environmental technology note from Cynthia Graber. Across the nation, millions of people are helping New Yorkers by making donations of time, money, and even blood. But workers at Ground Zero are also getting some mechanical help from urban rescue robots designed for use in military situations or natural disasters. About a dozen of these specialized robots have been called in from development labs around the nation. The smallest ones can fit in the palm of your hand. The big ones are about the size of a house cat. They can roll over themselves or stretch out to climb over tough terrain and fit into spaces too small for humans. Some are equipped with cameras, lights, and microphones. Some have infrared sensors to detect heat and sonar systems to determine the exact proportions of the physical space around them. These bots are unaffected by high temperatures or stench that might make humans recoil. And while hope is fading that they will be able to find anyone alive, these machines still have a role to play. They can venture into small spaces and test the stability of the surroundings. Robots have already been able to save the lives of firefighters by helping them avoid unsafe pockets. The robots being used now in New York are only prototypes. None are available commercially. Researchers say this tragic, unwanted test will help them make these robots more effective the next time they're needed. That's this week's Technology Note. I'm Cynthia Graber. And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The acts of terrorism in New York and Washington on September 11th left many Americans feeling vulnerable. The attacks revealed how a well-financed and well-organized group can wreak devastation and death on a massive scale. Terrorism experts say it could have been even worse had biological weapons been used. Biological weapons are diseases such as anthrax and smallpox. They are difficult to make and even more difficult to deploy as weapons. Still, shortly after the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, federal officials went into action. Jim Hughes directs the National Center for Infectious Disease. We did notify uh, state and local health departments throughout the country that they should heighten vigilance and fully utilize the resources that have been put in place over the past two and a half years to monitor for any uh, unusual clusters uh, of illness. There have been no unusual outbreaks reported, but the threat of bioterrorism is so great the government spends an estimated $2 billion a year developing defenses against them. I'm joined now by Bob Carty, a correspondent with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. He has reported extensively on this topic. Welcome, Bob. Hi, Steve. Biological weapons are called weapons of mass destruction. Why? Well, essentially because they are uh, so lethal. Uh, We're talking here about viruses, bacteria, fungi, living things. Uh, For example, 10 grams of anthrax, a biological weapon, could kill the same number of people as one ton of sarin gas, uh, a chemical weapon. And uh, biological weapons could even be comparable to nuclear weapons. Uh, There's one estimate, for example, that 200 pounds of anthrax released on a large major city could kill between 1 and 3 million people. Bob, who has these weapons? Well, there's a standard list that the experts use of about uh, 10 to 18 countries uh, who may 
have uh, biological weapons or biological weapons capacity. And that list usually runs uh, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Libya, China, North Korea, Russia, Israel, Taiwan, and then possibly Sudan, India, Pakistan, and Kazakhstan. There may be state-sponsored terrorist groups or international terrorist groups. And there's also some concern that there may be some capacity amongst uh, certain cults, doomsday cults or white supremacist groups. How easy would it be to get a biological weapon into the United States? Oh, very easy. And in fact, I, I've uh, heard this one expert on biological weapons uh, give a talk where he, he pulls out a small plastic vial from his uh, breast pocket and explains that he's just come through an airport security check uh, without any detection. They're very, very hard to detect. And that, of course, is one of the military advantages, so-called military advantages of biological weapons. How vulnerable are we to a biological weapons attack? Everyone agrees there is a threat out there. The question is how great. Uh, Colin Powell, the Secretary of State, has said he fears biological weapons more than chemical or nuclear weapons, for that matter. Uh, And others share that view. And one of them is is Michael Osterholm. I have some tape from him. He's an expert in infectious diseases, the former state epidemiologist in Minnesota, and the author of a book called Living Terrors, What America Needs to Know to Survive the Coming Bioterrorist Catastrophe. Here's Michael Osterholm. We're talking about a situation where even one single release could be so catastrophic that it would really begin to define our history as pre and post that release. All it's going to take is one event. And as the Irish Republican Army has often said, you have to be lucky all the time. We have to be lucky just once. I'm convinced that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, where, and how bad it will be. Not if, but when. Bob, this begs a question why biological weapons have not been used so far. Well, actually, recall that they were used once in World War II by the Japanese in China, and well, also used once in a small incident in Japan that perhaps we can talk about. But I, I think there's several reasons why they've not been used. Uh, there are inherent problems with these weapons. After all, if you release them, you can be killed yourself. You can kill your own troops. You can release diseases that cross borders, don't stay in one place. They become pandemics even. And these materials like anthrax or botulism or Ebola or smallpox are hard to produce. They're hard to weaponize in the right shape and size that they can stay alive and infect people uh, over a given time period. Above all, though, I think they're so repugnant. People who would use these would be subject to massive retaliation and wouldn't achieve anything politically. I think for all those reasons, in 1972, the world supported uh, the initiative by President Nixon to uh, initiate a biological weapons treaty to ban the stuff. And people hoped that that would work until, of course, uh, we discovered that the Soviet Union had a secret program. What was the scope of that Soviet program and what's the implications of it? We learned about it in about 1992 from a defector by the name of Ken Alabek. He was the former deputy chief of Biopreparat, the uh, Soviet, former Soviet Union's military biological weapons program. He now lives outside of Washington, D.C., and here's how he now describes his former biological weapons program in the former Soviet Union. You know, this program was huge. I would say about 60, maybe uh, 70,000 people involved. Biological weapons would be produced not by grams or kilograms, by tons. For example, 100 tons of plague or something like this. 500 tons, metric tons a year of dry anthrax. Uh, in the 80s, the Soviet Union started to develop uh, some genetically altered viruses. And first uh, target, first virus was a uh, smallpox virus. Now, why would the Soviets concentrate on smallpox as a biological weapon? Well, first of all, because it's very virulent. It kills about 30% of the people who are infected. And for every person infected, about 20 more people will get infected. So it produces successive waves of people with smallpox, people dying, health workers dying, public health systems possibly collapsing. Now, this disease also has a a tremendous sad historic irony about it, Steve. It was eradicated from the face of the earth. And it was eradicated by a World Health Program under the direction of an American, Dr. D.A. Henderson. The problem was some of the virus was still put in repositories in the United States and in the Soviet Union. And with the collapse of the Soviet Union, you have all kinds of scientists who disappeared who worked on these programs. And Dr. D.A. Henderson is very worried what happened to those scientists. Here's D.A. Henderson. They were not being paid very well, and probably a, a third to a half of the scientists have left the laboratories. We know that uh, Iran, uh, Iraq, uh, North Korea, Libya, all have been actively recruiting Russian scientists. 
the question is what has gone with them. So, Bob, that means, of course, that one of the places that terrorists could get material to put together a bioterrorist attack would be from these former Soviet scientists. Exactly. Nation states, uh, some of the countries we mentioned earlier, might try to recruit them and set up facilities for them. It might be uh, required, in fact, that a nation state be involved because of the, the complexity of the operation. That's for most of the biological weapons. The exception might be something like anthrax because it comes from the uh, corpses of dead animals and, and could be obtained by small fanatic groups, such as the group in Japan, Om Shinrikyo. That's the uh, doomsday cult that released sarin gas in the Tokyo subway system in 1995 and killed 12 people. But it was after that event they, they found out that prior to using the sarin gas, Om Shinrikyo had actually tried to use anthrax on nine or ten occasions and failed to actually make it work, and that's why they went to the chemical. Now, what does this mean, that biological weapons, are they easy for groups of fanatics to use, or, or are they too difficult? Well, the Om Shinrikyo uh, example is debated uh, hotly still to this day. You know, what does it actually show? Some would argue that it shows that it's hard for groups to use these weapons. Uh, in fact, the mistake that Om Shinrikyo made is they used the wrong kind of anthrax. They used the kind of anthrax that is used to make the vaccine for anthrax, and so it's not a kind that produces disease. However, some scientists do say that there's too much hype about the threat of biological weapons. For example, Milt Leitenberg. Uh, he's an, an arms control specialist with the Federation of American Scientists, and he's worried that a lot of the threat is built up by people who want to, in effect, make money uh, from the threat of biological weapons. There's this whole rabble of contractors. They can't write a study and say, this won't happen, because then there's no grant that follows, and they're out of business. I am an arms control specialist. I do think it's a problem of national programs, Iraq and Israel and Iranians and, and what's left of the former Soviet program. But all these terrorist groups with the bathtubs, the kitchen sinks, the garages, that's all nonsense. And that's Milt Leitenberg of the Federation of American Scientists. Bob, how much does this debate change now with these attacks in New York and Washington? Well, arms control specialists point out that the attacks in Washington and New York were, were very low-tech in a sense. Uh, the terrorists using knives to take control of planes and using the planes as weapons. So uh, it won't change necessarily the debate about what capacity terrorists have or do not have to organize a, an attack with biological weapons. However, the ability to avoid detection, to coordinate for uh, hijackings, and their willingness to cause mass murder, these aspects have uh, bioterrorist experts very, very concerned about uh, the consequences for biological weapons. U.S. government says it's spending $2 billion a year to prevent or mitigate a bioterrorist attack. Is that enough? Well, there's quite a debate about that as well. Some would actually say it's perhaps too much or not being spent in the, in the right direction because uh, you could put it into intelligence gathering, into developing uh, new machines to detect biological weapons or put into vaccines. The United States, for example, has ordered new, new stocks of uh, vaccine for smallpox. One of the disappointments, though, in terms of all the measures that are being taken is, is the United States' decision to withdraw from talks uh, to put into place a verification mechanism for the Biological Weapons Treaty. There were talks going on for six years. The United States this summer pulled out of the talks saying that the, tre the tre uh, proposed draft treaty wasn't strong enough, that it had too many loopholes. Others say that the United States may be doing this just because of trade reasons. That is, the, the plan called for inspection of plants, industrial operations, factories that might be able to make this material. And the United States feared that uh, UN inspections team might, teams might have spies in them that would take away industrial or commercial secrets. Bob Carter reports on environmental issues for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Bob, thanks for taking this time with us today. My pleasure, Steve. The tragedy of the proportions of the terrorist attacks of September 11th touches everyone. And for those of us who know someone or know of someone who perished, the stories can be made poignant by coincidence. During the past few weeks, the names of the dead have been printed in the paper and read on the airwaves, and one of them you might recognize is John Oganowski. He was the captain of American Airlines Flight 11, en route from Boston to L.A. when it was forced into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. 
Just a few weeks ago, Living on Earth's Diane Toomey interviewed John Oganowski. She and producer Susan Shepard were preparing a story about his work as a mentor farmer in Dracut, Massachusetts, where he owned a 150-acre farm called Whitegate. You see, the nearby city of Lowell has one of the largest populations of Cambodian refugees in the U.S., and Captain Oganowski was helping them to get started farming. He not only gave his labor and his land, but he also offered friendship and advice. Maybe it was just a coincidence that Mr. Oganowski was helping Southeast Asian immigrants start new lives in America, because he was an Air Force pilot and flew transport planes in Vietnam during the war there. John Oganowski was also generous to our crew. When they arrived at his farm, he whisked them off to a blueberry patch. Help yourselves, he said, as he explained how he got involved in the project. It started out with a uh, phone call from the um, Deputy Secretary of Agriculture, Gus Schumacher. And this was kind of a, a little project that he was starting, and he was looking for a place to get it going. And um, he called me and told me what, what he had in mind, and I said, uh, sure, I've got some excess land um, available right now that we could try it on. This was about four years ago, and uh, we've been, been doing it ever since. It sounded like a good project. Uh, my family, they're all immigrants. They came over here and had to start farming over here. So it, was a, it sounded like a good chance to get some uh, people farming who were farmers in their country before, and now they're, they're living in, in a city environment. So um, they had the desire to farm, and we had the land, so we got together. I think once a person is a farmer, they're a farmer for life. They're hooked. I don't know if the children of these farmers are going to be so active in it, but they may be because these Cambodians, they bring their whole families out here. You'll see the kids out there weeding and picking the crops, so they, they may take a liking to it. Do you have um, children that will continue in farming, John? I hope so. I have three daughters, and um, they're, they're, they're good workers. They, they pick blueberries and sell pumpkins, and, and um, hopefully they'll continue so I can retire. Of course, John Oganowski's life was cut short. And right now, it's unclear whether the work that was started on his farm will continue. But it is clear that his work and his humility are an inspiration for us all, as I suspect are the lives of many of the others who died that day and whose stories we are now just getting to hear. Usually we close our program with a bit of a soundscape. Sometimes we feature the calls and chirps of exotic birds or the shrieks of monkeys or maybe a recording of a street scene in Lisbon. The purpose of these sound montages is to pause and go virtually, at least, to another place for just a while and to think about how the sounds affect us. The events in New York City have created a soundscape none of us have ever heard before. Our theme composer and New Yorker, Allison Dean, created this series of reflections using some of the sound we gathered in the city. Yeah, that's right, if you're right, that right there is Ground Zero, the South Tower of the World Trade Center. Get the military in. I really believe still in a basic human kindness. So let's sing God Bless America together and remember how strong this country really is. How many trucks are in front of you? We got 
Alright, put your uh, car in a secure place. Your, car. your truck. Turn around and walk. Come down the battery tunnel. I'm here right now. Just go straight down by, by the truck. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation in cooperation with Harvard University. Our production staff includes Anna Solomon Greenbaum, Cynthia Graber, Maggie Villiger, Jennifer Chu, and Gernot Wagner, along with Peter Shaw, Leah Brown, Susan Shepard, Carly Ferguson, Mylisa Muniz, and Bunny Lester. We had help this week from Jessica Penny and Richard Doherty. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art courtesy of Earth Ear. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Liz Lempert is our Western editor. Diane Toomey is our science editor. Eileen Belinsky is our senior editor. And Chris Ballman is the senior producer of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, executive producer. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation Environmental Information Fund. Major contributors include the National Science Foundation, supporting environmental education, the David and Lucille Packard Foundation for reporting on marine issues, the W. Alton Jones Foundation, promoting new ways to provide energy for the world economy without harm to the environment, www.wajones.org. The William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, for reporting on Western issues. The Educational Foundation of America, for reporting on energy and climate change. The Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, supporting efforts to better understand environmental change. The Rockefeller Foundation and the Turner Foundation. This is NPR. National Public Radio.